Let's pray together before we begin. Father, we thank you again for your unspeakable kindness and mercy to us. We are a privileged people to be so pitied by our God, to be so well-treated, to be so graced with unmerited favor and kindness from you. Pray that this morning we would grasp the heights of your plans for us, as we just sang. Father, thank you also this morning for the safe return of our dear brother, Patrick Rowe. We thank you for how you have protected him, kept him, and in a sense, because of his faithfulness to keep us so informed of how he's doing, we feel like in some ways he's never left, but we know he has left. His family has felt it the most, but we thank you with all of our hearts that you have kept him, preserved him, and brought him back to us. Please receive our thanks. And as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series, a series of seven sermons, uh, and the tentative title for the series, I guess the tentative has become the official, the official title for the series is Heritage Baptist Church, What in the World Are We Doing Here? And that title can sound somewhat insulting because it can imply that we don't know what we're doing and we're just kind of floundering around and wandering aimlessly on the earth. Well, that's not the case. It's always good to step back and reflect and really ask those questions, those assessment kind of questions, those evaluation kind of questions, where we ask, what are we as the church? Who are we as the church of Jesus Christ? And what are we as the church of Jesus Christ to be about in the world? And that is what we're going to try to back for you in the next few weeks. What, why this series? Why this series now? Well, the main reason for this series is to remind ourselves, as I just said, of who we are and what we're about. Now, the nature of this series will be, like I said, seven sermons, Lord willing, but it will basically be an unpacking of the purpose statement in our Constitution. In our church constitution, we have the following purpose statement that kind of is meant to give us a compass as a church, help us to understand who we are and what we're to be about, and I'd like to read that purpose statement to you. This church, Heritage Baptist Church, this church exists by the grace of God and for the glory of God, which shall be the ultimate purpose of all of its activities. We seek to glorify the God of Scripture by promoting His worship, edifying and equipping the saints, evangelizing the nations, planting and strengthening churches, calling other assemblies to biblical faithfulness and purity, and ministering to the needy, thus proclaiming and defending God's perfect law and glorious gospel of grace throughout the world. That is a high, high calling. And this morning, what we want to do is talk about a part of that calling, which is the first line in the sentence, which is, the church exists by the grace and for the glory of God. So my task is to kind of set the, the, the series in its whole context 
with a very, very grand statement, which is this church exists by the grace of God and for the glory of God. But before I move into that part of our church constitution and explain the biblical foundation for it, I want to give you a tentative schedule for who's going to be preaching what and, and where we hope to go. Lord willing, next week, Pastor Sam will be unpacking the how we glorify God part, which is really the, the entire purpose statement is a description of how we are going to glorify God. And Pastor Sam will be directing our thoughts to worship, the worship of God. Jonathan will be dealing with edifying and equipping the saints. Pastor Keith will deal with evangelizing the nations. Pastor Rich will discuss and preach on planting and strengthening other churches. Pastor Ted will take up ministering to the needy. And Pastor Joe will close with proclaiming and defending God's perfect law and glorious gospel of grace throughout the world. So I lay all that before you for your prayers. I lay all that before you that you will pray for your pastors, pray for Jonathan, pray for me this morning that we will be faithful to the Word of God in unpacking this purpose statement, and that God will use this series to kind of recalibrate us to our calling as His people in His world. So my task this morning is to set this series in a context. I want to talk about our ultimate identity and purpose. I want to answer the questions in the big picture, who are we and what are we here for? And to do that, I want to take us to a text that helps us answer those two questions in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you're a visitor and didn't bring your Bible this morning or don't have a Bible, you will find it in a pew Bible on page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2. My text this morning is 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10. But verse 9 begins with a but, the word but, so that implies that it falls in a context. We need to read back at verse 4. So we'll start at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and read through verse 10. Peter writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, whom he addresses in verse 1 of chapter 1, writes the following in his letter. Verse 4 of chapter 2, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, you see that we exist by the grace of God and for the glory of God right there in verse 9. 
At the beginning of verse 9, you have the grace of God, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Then you have the reason for the glory of God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what I want to bring our attention to this morning. This church exists by the grace of God and for the glory of God. What is First Peter all about? Who is Peter writing to? Peter is writing, as he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, to the elect exiles who are scattered all throughout Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's writing to this ragtag bunch of people who have become a church that are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And this is not just a church, but it's a suffering church. 1 Peter is written to Christians who are under great persecution and opposition for their faith. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These people are enduring intense persecution. It's described as fire. That's not the only place he addresses it. He addresses it many other places throughout the letter. This is a suffering people in the midst of much opposition and persecution. He encourages them, beginning with verse 3 and moving on to the end, really the end of chapter 1, with what God has done for them, the amazing grace that they have received from God, that they should be called the people of God, that they should be brought and rescued out of their sins, and that they should be called into fellowship with Jesus Christ and fellowship with each other. I want to pick up at verse 4 of chapter 2 and kind of walk us through very briefly the context leading up to verse 9. Because as I said just a minute ago, verse 9 begins with the word but. And but, the transition word but, draws us back to what Peter has just been saying in the previous verses. Well, what has he been saying in the previous verses? He's been saying really three things. He's been describing who Jesus is. He's been describing how people respond to Jesus. And under that... How, that, how, he, how people respond to Jesus, he's been thinking about two categories of people, those who believed in him, those who rejected him. So I want to talk about those things briefly just to set our text in context. We see at the beginning of verse 4, talking about believers, as you come to him, that is present tense, continual coming, as you continually come to him, so that's, that's who Christians are, We are people who, by the grace of God, are coming to Him. It's not just we came to Him at one point in time, but that presently, every day of our lives, moment by moment, we continually come to Him. Now, who's the Him? It's Jesus. He's described in verse 4 as a living stone. This points back to Psalm 118, verse 22, which is quoted later in this passage, talking about the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in Acts 4, Peter quotes this text again and identifies that the fact that Jesus is now this living stone, this cornerstone, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. So he is a living stone. He is the cornerstone that has been raised from the dead. A living stone. We've come to him. We've come to a living Jesus. We don't come to some dead old teacher. We come to a resurrected Savior who has been made alive by God from the dead and who reigns presently over heaven and earth. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men. That's been his testimony down through history. 
He has been one who, even though he is a living stone, even though people are coming to him, nevertheless, he is by and large rejected by men. But in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Jesus means more to God than anything. And he is, he is chosen by God and he is precious to God. And so he is to his people. You yourselves, verse 5, talking to Christians again, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this can sound very foreign to us because this is Old Testament religion here. This is Old Covenant Israel imagery. You have the imagery of a spiritual house and living stones and holy priesthood and spiritual sacrifices. And if we don't understand this, it can gut its significance. It just passes through our minds like, this. Is, well, this is really no big deal. I don't understand this. This is foreign to me. Well, let me briefly explain. What he's saying is that the church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. There is no more temple There is no more Old Testament sacrificial system because now the church of Jesus Christ is that temple. They are priests. There is no priesthood needed anymore. The temple are the priests. The the temple is no longer a physical temple. The temple is now a spiritual house made up of living stones. He's mixing metaphors, but what he's saying is the temple is no longer physical and literal and part of the Old Covenant. It's now... The church of Jesus Christ made up of genuine believers who follow Jesus, who are alive and follow Him. Living stones following the living stone. For it stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. That's where Peter gets his idea about Jesus being chosen and precious. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So who is Jesus for Peter? And for Christians, Jesus is the living stone. He's the one who's been raised from the dead. He is the one whom God has chosen, whom God has, is precious to God, and whom Christians are coming to, who are following, who believe in, and who as a result will not be put to shame on the day of judgment. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. And now Peter moves in to those who have rejected him. But for those who do not believe, this is prophecy. This is predicted. This was the reality. Peter quotes now Psalm 118 when he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Let me say this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's the stone? The stone is Jesus. The builders have rejected him. But he has become the cornerstone. That is, he is the head of the building. He is the stone that holds up the entire structure, the entire spiritual house is being held. The entire church of Jesus Christ is being held by the cornerstone, by Jesus himself. This is an unbelievable statement that the rejection of Jesus does nothing to who Jesus really is. People can reject him and accept him, and it does not change the fact that he is the cornerstone, that he is chosen and precious, that he is God's appointed mediator, that he is God's appointed Savior. It does absolutely nothing. He has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, why do people reject Jesus? Why do people reject this cornerstone, this one who is chosen and precious? Verse 8, the end. They stumble. And they're offended by him. 
because they disobey the Word. So Peter is saying they hear the Word, they hear the Word of God, which is packaged supremely in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They hear that Word, they don't like that Word, they're offended by that Word. They hear of a Jesus who says that He is the only way to the Father and that all other ways lead to hell. And they hear that. They hear that He's the only Savior. They hear that He's the risen One, that He calls all nations, all people everywhere to repent of their sin and to believe in Him. And they are offended by that. They stumble over that message. And as a result, they disobey. But there's something else going on behind that as well. Notice the end of verse 8. As they were destined to do. Behind their rejection, behind their disobedience, behind their response of no to Jesus Christ, is a sovereign destiny that was appointed for them to respond that way. What you have here is Scripture bringing together, Peter bringing together for us the mystery of how human beings can be held responsible, and they are, for their rejection of Jesus, for their disobedience to the Word of God, and nevertheless, God's sovereignty behind that, destining them for such a response. And that's what Peter intends for the people to taste. Which is why he begins verse 9 with, But you are a chosen race. He wants these suffering people, these people who have been rejected by men, who follow a rejected Savior, who are receiving ill treatment and persecution, he wants them to feel how gracious God has been to them. So now let's launch into verse 9. And I want to apply this to us as, 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 as the church. We are one church. We are a local expression of the universal church of Jesus Christ. And I want to speak to you because Peter is not speaking to individual Christians here. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church corporately. And that's what I want to do this morning. And I want to help us taste and feel that we exist by the grace of God. But you are a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I want to look at those four phrases one at a time. But before I do that, let me give you the Old Testament background of what's in Peter's mind when he, when he says these phrases, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and people for his own possession. So let's hold our place in First Peter and turn with me back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, and see if you don't hear this same language when God addresses the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in Ephesians, or sorry, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Unspeakable grace, 
kindness, mercy, that God would rescue his covenant people from bondage and slavery in, English, in, in, in Egypt and bear them on in, eagle's wings to himself. And then he says this in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, here it is, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now Peter is saying this to the church of Jesus Christ because Israel did not do that. Israel was not a treasured possession. In a sense, they were, but they forfeited their right to be that by breaking covenant with God. God has always desired, ever since the creation of Adam and Eve, He has always desired a people for His praise. That is the reason He created this universe. One of the main reasons. At least the reason He created this planet. He created this planet so that it would be populated by people who are passionately, gloriously reflecting the image of God. That's why He made Adam and Eve. He made them in His image to reflect His glory to the earth, to live in obedient submission to Him, and to, from that garden temple, expand it out so that it would so fill the whole world as the human race was, was propagated throughout the world. That was his creation intention. Of course, the fall messed all of that up. God did not wipe it away. He started again. He called Abraham, Abram then, out of Ur, said that I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he fulfilled that in the people of Israel. And the people of Israel failed. But God has not dropped his purpose. God has continued to pursue a people who will be his very own, who will reflect his glory to the nations. And that is what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says is happening in the church these days. Because the church is the continuation of Israel. The church is the people of God that God has always been pursuing. It is the fulfillment of Israel, the continuation of Israel, the privileges that once belonged to the ethnic people of Israel now belong to the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. Behind that, is also behind this phrase, this chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, is also Isaiah 43. And this is the last text I'll turn you to in the Old Testament. Let's look briefly again at Isaiah, or briefly at Isaiah 43, again in the Old Testament. And look at verse 20 and 21. Isaiah 43, 20 and 21. You will hear this similar theme. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, Israel. Why did he choose them? The people whom I formed for myself. There they are, a people that would belong to God, a people that would be God's special possession, that they might declare my praise. So in Peter's mind are... Exodus 19, really Isaiah 43, and the whole Old Testament. And he is basically bringing all this together and saying, church that is suffering, that is undergoing various trials, that feel like fire, you are a people whom God has formed for himself. So let's begin walking now through his description of this people. 
first, you are a chosen race. That is, Church of Jesus Christ, Heritage Baptist Church, you have been chosen by God. Now, I already pointed us to the first verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, but let's look there again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. There's the first time he points to this, really the doctrine of election. You are a chosen race. He looks back here to, and, and begins by addressing them as the elect of God. They are the chosen of God. They are exiles. They have been dispersed throughout all of Asia Minor. They are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They are spread, and yet they have been brought together to be a people. How in the world did this bunch of people get brought together? God chose them. That is Peter's answer. They were the elect exiles. They were the chosen race. Is that not the case with us? I mean, we are a very, very different bunch of people. We are a people who have all kinds of different backgrounds. We are people who have had great tragedy happen in our lives. We are people who have sinned. We are people who... There should be no human explanation why any of us, especially all of us, should all love each other, care for one another, and be a part of the church of Jesus Christ together, other than the fact that God was at work in our individual histories before the foundation of the world. And God, by His grace, set us apart before the foundation of the world. Our destiny was not to reject Jesus Christ. Our destiny was not to disobey the Word of God. Our destiny was not to receive the wrath of God, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, is the destiny of some, but rather that we would obtain salvation through Jesus. That is unspeakable kindness. Because verse 10 says, once we were not a people. We were no kind of people. But now we are a people of God. We are a chosen race. We have been called out of darkness and we have been brought into fellowship with Christ and with one another. God did not choose us because He knew we were good or that we would be good after conversion because that can't be because good works are the fruit of election. John fifteen sixteen says, I, You did not choose me. I chose you and I chose you that you would go and bear fruit. Our going and bearing fruit, our living a life of good works and obedience to Jesus is the fruit of our election. It's not the root of it. It's not the cause of it. Nor did God choose us because He foresaw that we would believe and come to Christ. Because faith is the consequence of election. It flows out of election, as Acts 13.48 says. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. Our faith rested on our previous divine appointment to eternal life. To suppose that election came on the foresight of our faith is to place calling, the call of God, which brings about our faith, before election, which is contrary to the order in which Scripture represents things. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Moreover, those whom He did predestine, them He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. So election preceded all of that. 
It is not that he sees that some are better than others, and because he foresees that some men will have better abilities or more wisdom than others or be of more service to God than others. And it's not because he foresees that we're going to be great and progress, possess great advantages in serving him. Contrary to all of that, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven and 28 says he chose us because we were foolish He chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. The base things of this world, the things that are despised, God has chosen. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. We have no ground for boasting. Election in Scripture is everywhere referred to as owing to God's own good pleasure. Matthew 11.26 Even so, Father, it was good that you should conceal it from the wise and reveal it to infants. 2 Timothy 1.9 He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Written in the Lamb's book of life from all eternity. Revelation 21.27 Given to Christ. Did you know you did not belong to Jesus? There is a sense in which this is true, but I want you to feel the effect of it. You did not belong to Jesus. When you came to faith, you belonged to Jesus before God created the world. John 17 says that as Jesus is praying, Father, I want those you have given to me from before the foundation of the world. So our election, our choosing, is rooted in the kindness and mercy and pity of God for us. We have no grounds for boasting. There's nothing we can bring to it and say, this was the reason, Lord, that you chose me. We have to say with Isaac Watts, why was I made to hear your voice and enter Wilder's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in that else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. It's all owing to God's kindness and mercy. But notice, we're not the only ones who are chosen. I read verses 4 to 8, and we already talked about that Jesus is also chosen. Jesus is, according to verse 4, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And in the language of verse 6, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So, This is meant to draw our attention to our union with Christ. Peter is drawing the the believer's attention there. He's saying, look, you're a chosen race. God has chosen you. But God has chosen you to be in union with the, the chosen one. To be in union with the one who is precious to me. Therefore, by virtue of you being in union with him, you too are precious to me. You are my people. I have chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world to be my possession. Church, feel that this morning. Feel your privilege Feel your incomparable, the incomparable mercy that you have received from God. To first of all, get a chance to hear the gospel, period. But to actually see it as beautiful and embrace it as true, that is the mercy of God to you. So we are a chosen race, first. Secondly, we have been chosen by God, but we are also accepted with God. We have been chosen by God, we are accepted with God. A royal priesthood. Now, if you notice in verse 5, Peter also describes us as a priesthood when he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy 
priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You notice that acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's where I'm picking up on the idea of we are accepted with God and we have access to God by virtue of being a royal priesthood. Now this this language again is is Old Testament. It sounds foreign to us. It sounds it's very much not a part of our culture. We don't we don't think of royalty much in our existence. We don't think of priesthood very much. So let me try to help us feel this what Peter is getting at. When Peter is describing the church as a royal priesthood, he is saying that in the language of Revelation, that God has made us a kingdom of priests to Him. That we are going to, we have not, we have not only been brought into that, that, that special fellowship that the priests occupied in the Old Testament. Not everyone could be a priest. You had to be chosen by God. You had to be part of a specific tribe. You, had to, you, you were called to belong especially to God. You were called to mediate God's glory to people, to offer worship by preparing and offering sacrifices to God. And Peter's picking up on all that imagery. But the main thing that he wants us to feel is that we have been accepted by God and exalted to a place of unparalleled privilege. It's not just that we've been chosen and saved and rescued from damnation, but it's that we have been exalted to a position of great privilege. Because we are not only priests... We are not only have been called into special relationship and access to God, but we are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood that has been called into fellowship with God. This is, this is unbelievable mercy. To be a royal priesthood, to belong especially to God, to be accepted, to find acceptance with God, and to have access to God. And this is all of God's doing. And we as a priesthood offer him acceptable worship through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. That is, we are a people separated for God. So we have been chosen by God. We're a chosen race. We are accepted and have access to God. We are a royal priesthood. And we are separated for God, a holy nation. This is what God has always wanted. God has desired a people who would be holy, that is, set apart for Him. He's desired a group of people, a collection of people, who would be set apart for Him. Holy, that's literally what He's talking about here. Set apart from the rest of the world who would be His own. And that is what God has made us to be. You have to understand this. You have to understand your positional holiness before God if you're ever going to live out the purpose that God has given to us. That's why in the, in the, in the, in the church constitution purpose statement, we said this church exists by the grace of God for the glory of God. We don't say first, this church exists for the glory of God. That would be true. That would be right. That is certainly appropriate. But we need to grasp the grace that we have received in order to live out and reflect the glory that God would have us to reflect. And I'm going to explain that more in just a minute when we get to proclaiming the excellencies of Him. But we are a holy nation. That is, we are a set-apart people. Say, I don't, I don't, I'm still unholy. I'm still not what I ought to be. Of course you are. 
Did you notice 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15? You've read it before. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter is writing to unholy people who are holy. He is writing to a holy nation that is still unholy. Why? Because he's talking about two different kinds of holiness here. He said the holy nation is who we are positionally as a result of God's choosing us, as a, as a result of God's accepting us in Christ. We are a holy nation. We've been set apart for Him. And now He's saying, you have been set apart, so live set apart. That's His point in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 15. It's He who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you will be holy for I am holy. That's the reason God has set us apart to be a holy nation. Because He is holy. He desires to be seen. He desires to be known through His people. Which is why He has chosen us. Because we would never be His people otherwise. He had to do it that way. He would have no people apart from His choosing. He would have no priesthood lest He made us acceptable to God through that one priest who came and laid his life down and shed his blood, as it says in verse 18 of chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We were ransomed and brought and made a holy nation, bought out of slavery to sin through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. So we are separated for God. We've been chosen by God, we are accepted with God, and we are separated for God. Finally, we belong to God. We belong to God. We are not only a chosen race, not only a royal priesthood, not only a holy nation, but a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. I don't know about you. I, I, I do know this about you because you are you have been received the same mercy that I have. But does it not thrill your heart to be to, to wake up and to know that nothing that I do today is going to change this reality? Nothing, I am. I, I belong to God. I belong to God. Whether I feel like I belong to God, whether my own sin wars against that, I belong to God. I am a person for His own possession. And how do you know that? You know that first and foremost because you want to belong to God. And you feel that, and that thrills you, and you're thankful for that. You are thankful to belong to God. I am a people. I am a person. I belong to this church. I belong to this, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. I am a people for his own possession. I am a treasured, as the language of Deuteronomy 7. I am a treasured possession. We are a treasured people. Did you know that God doesn't just tolerate you? God loves you. God desires you. God takes pleasure in you because you belong to Him. So we need to feel that. God does not just tolerate us as His people. God is not just, well, i got to save a multitude just to, so I can fulfill my creation purpose. My heart's not in it. No, if anything, He has shown profoundly that His heart's in it. Why? He gave His Son. His heart is in it. He did not... He thought, he thought about Jesus, and he thought about the church. He thought about this great chosen race. He thought about this royal priesthood. He thought about this holy nation. He thought about this people for his own possession, and he looked at the Son and says, I'll give, I'll give you for them. 
And the son said, Father, I'd have it no other way. I want them as well. I want a people. And this is the love of God displayed for us. People for his own possession. Now, how in the world did we get here? How did this happen? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We didn't just wake up and that was our, that was our reality. We didn't just wake up one day and think, hmm, I want to be a part of this group that God is creating. I want to be a living stone. We don't wake up that way. How did all this happen? Well, Peter explains it to us. It first of all happened as chapter 2, verse 24 says it happened. So let's look there. How did all this happen? Chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, that is Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's how it happened. First of all, in history, God said, I want to save a people. I will have a people for my own possession. I will have a holy nation. I will have a royal priesthood. I will have a chosen race. But I can't just have them as they are. I can't just go down into this sin-cursed, sin-infected earth and being the holy God that I am, rescue this people and bring them in, apart from what my son has to come and do. And Peter tells us what his son had to come and do, which is bear our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus had to absorb the wrath of God for our sins. He had to die the just for the unjust, the holy for the unholy, so that God, in accepting us, in choosing us, in adopting us into his family, in reconciling us to himself, could be holy and just and righteous in doing so. 1 Peter 3.18 also points the way forward. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is no being brought to God. There is no God bringing us to himself to be his own possession, apart from Jesus suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It does not happen any other way. It has to happen that way. Jesus had to come. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to rise again. He had to become the cornerstone. He had to be the living stone by virtue of His resurrection in order for us to be this people that Peter is describing. But not only that, it took more than that. Yes, it took even more than that because we wouldn't have believed it. We wouldn't have received Him. This one who's been rejected by men. This one who's been despised. And in chapter 1, verse 22... Peter tells us how it all happened for us. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So our souls get purified by our obedience to the truth. By our receiving of the word of God, we are cleansed. But, verse 23, there's something going on behind that that caused us to be obedient to the truth, that caused us to have our souls purified through the obedience to the truth. What's behind it? since you've been born again. Behind that is the call of God, the regeneration of our souls, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Verse 25, and this Word is the good news that's preached to you. Here's how Peter's thinking of it. He says, this good news, this gospel came to you. You would have rejected it had not this gospel... This, he, bore our, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died the righteous for the unrighteous. This good word that was preached 
was accompanied by saving power from God that caused you to believe it, be born again, caused you to be regenerated so that you would have faith and trust and obey and follow this truth. That's what's behind all of it. He says it in verse 9 as well, that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There it is. We've been called out of darkness. We've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God came to us and was the means by which we were born again. It was the means that God used to bring us to Himself. We heard the Gospel. We heard this message about Jesus. And because of God's work in our lives, both prior to our existence and in our present history, brought us savingly to Christ through receiving that message, believing that message, and embracing that message, and the Christ that is offered in it. Now, finally... We exist by the grace of God. We have been called to be the people of grace. Why? So that, verse 9, you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, I just want us to feel that the excellencies that we are to proclaim are gospel excellencies. We are fundamentally to be a people who are known and proclaim the... It's certainly, not, it's certainly not limited to this, but Peter wants a flavor here to be characteristic of this people. He wants us to have that when people see us and interact with us, they, they see a humble people. They see a people who sense their great privilege not their great strength. God does not want a strong people in the sense of who are proud of their accomplishments and who tout their obedience. He does not want people to interact with us and first of all hear about us, how moral we are and how well we live and how ordered our families are. He does not want that flavor first. The flavor He wants first is mercy. These people have received mercy. They have been called out of darkness. They have been brought into light. They are a chosen people, not of their own. He wants the gospel to flavor that. So my plea and my prayer is that the gospel would become and increasingly become the center of our church so that these excellencies, these are the excellencies that God wants to be known for. He wants to be known as this God who does these kind of things for people. That's the excellencies He wants to know. Now, does He want all of His glorious excellencies to be known? Yes. But all of His glorious excellencies are supremely seen here in the mercy that He gives to an undeserving people. And that has to, that's why we have to bathe ourselves in these reminders so that we don't, as we start thinking about the rest of this series, we don't start thinking, oh, worship, we're doing that. Oh, edifying the saints, we're doing that. Oh, we're just checklist stuff. No, the whole context in which we're to hear the purpose for our existence is the gospel, grace, love, mercy, pity, compassion. That's the way we're to live. That's the way we're to, that, that is the life that God would call us to enjoy. Is a pitied existence, a, 
a loved existence. We are the we are the people of God. We've received mercy. We should reflect that to the world. Now, what is the excellencies that God desires of us here? What does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of Him? Well, to proclaim or declare refers in this context and in the context of First Peter to two things mainly. Number one, a life of worship that that is that also is is kind of brought to a head in the corporate gatherings of worship. In verse five he says that we're being we're we're a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this offering up of spiritual sacrifices, this worship that we offer up to God, is not just what we're doing now. It's not just it is this. It's not just this. So worship is involved. We live to the praise of Jesus Christ. We live under His grace to the praise of His grace. He wants us to respond to Him in light of these realities. He, he, church, he, he wants you to, to relate to Him on the basis of these things. God wants you to relate to Him as this people. Which means that we are a people that is not afraid to be bold with God. We're not a, we're humble people, but we're not just always self-deprecating and 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 looking down upon ourselves and always casting sin in a huge light. And gr- that does no service to grace. It certainly does in the sense of we want to understand our sin in light of the cross, so that we can magnify the grace of God. So may God teach us more of our sin. But He wants us to respond. To his grace. He wants us to respond to these realities. He wants us to relate to him as a chosen race. He wants us to relate to him as a royal priesthood. He wants us to relate to him as a holy nation, as a people for his own possession, and so forth. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Also, not only worship, but evangelism. Now, let me turn you briefly to a couple texts here in 1 Peter that help me understand why that's the case. 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 12, this focus on evangelism, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. So there's the evangelism, the preaching of the good news of the gospel. Verse 25, we already read it, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, and Peter's uh, exhortation to uh, wives and how they should relate to unbelieving husbands. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. There it is, conversion, evangelism. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, again we see evangelism. But in your hearts, honor Christ as, as, as holy. Set apart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Then we have in chapter 4, verse 17, another call. For it is the time it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It begins with us. What will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this whole idea of the gospel of God being preached, proclaimed, known, seen, and his focus is, is right here on becoming a particular kind of people as you're suffering, receiving persecution, church, as you're receiving backlash, because you are this holy, set-apart nation, because you are this people for God's own possession, as you are this people and receive persecution, just as your Master was and Savior was rejected, and as you reflect these excellencies of Him, you will win a hearing and be able to proclaim this gospel with authenticity to others, and that you will be the people who will declare His praise, both 
in the assembly of the godly and among the, the nations of the earth. As he says, following on verse 11 and 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, let me close. He has given us, God has given us our identity by His grace that His identity might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who He is. God made us who we are so we can make known who He is. Our identity is for the sake of making known His identity. We need to feel that. Our identity, the reason God has shown us such grace, the reason God has plunged Himself into such depths of love to rescue, save, call us, is because He wants to be known in this world. He wants to be seen in this world. And He wants to be seen through a people who have been made in His image being renewed in His image. That's what He wants. The meaning of our identity, get this, the meaning of our identity is that the excellency of God be seen in our church. We want the excellency of God to be known in us, to be seen in us, to be reflected by us. That is what God wants. He wants people to see and say, God is excellent because Heritage Baptist Church exists. God is excellent. God made us who we are to show the world who He is. So may that form an umbrella over this entire series. That as we think about all these nitty-gritty parts of what it means to be the church and what it means to live out our purpose, may we not forget this big category that we respond to all of this by grace. Everything that's coming in the next six weeks is to be responded to on the basis of this reality. So when we hear things that hurt us, that wound us, that convict us, we don't forget this. We hear this. We hear things that convict us. We hear things that, 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 that harm us, that, that cause our sin to make us feel uncomfortable. And we, but we don't think, oh, I'm not a chosen race anymore. I'm not a people for his own... He's ministering to us because we are that. So hear all this in light of the... Don't, come in here. Remind yourself. Remind yourself throughout this week. I'm a chosen race. I, I'm, I belong to a holy people. I belong to, I'm a, I belong to the people that God is owning, that God has owned, that God has bought with the blood of His own Son. I belong to that people. And I exist so that God may be shown, that God may be known. That's why we worship. That's why we build each other up. That's why we minister to the needy. That's why we evangelize the nation, so that God will be shown and known for who He is. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled this morning by our profound privileges. We are humbled by the reality that You would call us a chosen people. We are humbled to be included, to be included in this people. Help us to marvel at your grace. Help us to relish and bathe 
and drink deeply from this fountain all this week. And may as a result, we be more accurately reflective of reflecting the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen. With Cisa, we will forego the induction till tonight. My understanding is that she's still going to be with us tonight, right? Very good. Um, I hope you won't know that we're not getting our sermonic material from our Constitution. Our Constitution is getting its wisdom from the Scriptures. And that's why we spend all this time, this precious time in First Peter chapter 2 today. What would it be like if at the end of 2010, the saints of Heritage Baptist Church made tremendous progress in proclaiming the excellencies of our Savior? I'm sure Mark is right. I'm sure that many more people would be attracted to our Savior and interested in our gospel. May the Lord grant us that. In fact, I'm going to leave you with this benediction, my own words, but based upon the word of God. May I give a benediction to you who are unbelievers? May God grant you the grace to be called out of darkness. May God enable you to become a part of that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that people of his own possession. And for those of us who have experienced that, may God give us the grace we need to better proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. God bless you.